Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Jeffrey Sikinga. He is the executive director of the Ashbrook Center and professor of political science at Ashland University. He has been a senior fellow in the Program on Constitutionalism and Democracy at the University of Virginia, a visiting scholar at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and the William E. Simon Distinguished Visiting Professor at the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. He has lectured across the country on religious liberty, American politics, and the Supreme Court. He is the author of a number of reviews, articles, and book chapters on political thought, the U.S. Constitution, politics, and religion. He joins us today to discuss the education of citizens. Jeff Sikinga, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you very much for having me, Nino. Now, Jeff, I, I read a little bit of your bio there, but I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself and how it is that you came to Ashbrook. Sure. I got here actually in January of 1997, so a number of years ago, um, and was immediately taken in with the very unique, interesting, and compelling way that Ashbrook was thinking about education uh, as, as a real conversation among minds, among students, with professors, and also, of course, across time with minds like Tocqueville or Locke or Madison or Lincoln. And it just grabbed me and I've been here ever since. Wonderful. And could you tell us a little bit about the Ashbrook Center, what it is you all are up to, how the center came to be? Yeah, we, we, we were inaugurated in 1983 by President Ronald Reagan, uh, named after John Ashbrook, who uh, was a congressman from Ohio uh, and a good friend of President Reagan's. We uh, launched then in 93 with a speaker series. And because uh, President um, Congressman Ashbrook actually passed away while he was running for office. So to memorialize him, his friends set up this center. And then we came on after that, starting this lecture series, um, major speakers, President Reagan was the first, Vice President Bush, and then on from there, started a scholar program, an undergraduate honors program, and have grown that pretty dramatically. I think it started with about a dozen students and now we've got over 125 wow. from around the country. Wow. So growing and we're gonna grow more. And then we started adding programs for teachers. Um, started with a master's program and now have added seminars around the country. All really rooted in two basic fundamental principles for us. Um, we start with Jefferson's line from the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, uh, Almighty God hath created the mind free. Hmm. So we say education is about freely pursuing the truth with others, um, not really about information and definitely not about indoctrination, but about that kind of discovery of the truth. And um, we, the other principle that we start from is that America is free hmm. in the sense that it's founded on principles of freedom and self-government. And our history is kind of the story of our struggle to try to live up to those principles. Those are the, or, that's kind of the organizing intellectual architecture of, of Ashbrook and all of our programs. Wonderful. And I'll, I'll include for listeners a link to your website in the show notes. And I encourage everyone to, to check it out, see the work that the Ashbrook Center is doing. It is invaluable. Now to the meat of the discussion, the work of educating citizens. Let's start with 
our founding, a founder, and a man who influenced both. Thomas Jefferson once said that John Locke was one of the three greatest men the world had ever produced. I think that probably overstates the case, but Locke's influence on the American founding is considerable. And Locke gave some thought to the education of young men and women, down even to how frequently children should wash their feet. So what does John Locke have to say about the sort of education necessary to sustain a liberal democracy like our own? Yeah, that's a great question. It's part of Locke's thought that we don't often turn to, but he wrote this work, Some Thoughts Concerning Education, which was published later in his career, but it's kind of a summary, uh, really an application of Locke's political principles and political philosophy to the work of education. Because it's sometimes misunderstood when you think about Locke, you think it's all political philosophy, it's all epistemology, it's all philosophy, and there's no cultivation of souls, Mm. uh, of citizens, of of people, human beings. And that's not true. Locke paid a lot of attention to that and wrote this extremely interesting treatise where if you know Locke's other works, you see so much of those other works informing his book on education, but you also see that his education is a complement to his political philosophy. If he articulates the principles of liberal democracy, then the question is, what kind of human beings does liberal democracy need? And I think he tells us a lot about that in some thoughts concerning education. And so what sort of human beings does a liberal democracy need? Rational and industrious, to take a line from the second treatise. Uh, But how do you make children into rational, industrious, and I think I would add this, proud self-governors. That's the Lockean man, as Locke outlines him and her. He says the education also applies to girls. Uh, that's That's the Lockean human being that they are rational and he goes, and we can talk a lot more about it, of course, but articulates, how do you make a child actually rational? How do you make them industrious and hardworking? And, and how do you make them proud of governing themselves? The alternative would be that they're proud of dominating other people, mm-hmm. or they're not courageous enough to stand up for their own freedom. He says, how do you find that middle ground? I mean, really, the, I, I think the whole education is organized around those three themes. Is this sort of education uniquely important in a democratic republic like our own? You know, if, if we were having this conversation under a different sort of regime, would we still be having this same conversation saying, you know, what's the importance of a civic education under a monarchy? Or is it uniquely important to a democratic republic? Every regime has, it, has education. Right. We know from Aristotle that every regime educates toward the regime, right. toward sustaining the regime. But it is uniquely important in a liberal democracy because so much is left to civil society. So much is left to individuals, to families, to communities that we have to be thinking about it. We have to and we have to be doing it for it to happen. It doesn't just happen automatically. Hmm. America is a propositional nation. America is not merely an idea, as, as President Biden recently said, but it is, as the eminent historian Bill McClay said on this podcast, America is an idea with a people, but also a people with an idea. So the stakes seem even higher, right? A propositional nation. Reject the proposition or forget the proposition, lose the nation. Are the stakes higher for us? Absolutely. That's right. It's not a blood and soil country. Yeah. Um, Tocqueville calls it reflective patriotism. Mm. That, that Americans 
to love their country have to understand why it's lovable. Yeah. That we don't just grow up with it that way. Think of, think of immigrants. Yeah. Right? They, they're coming from elsewhere. They bring that with them, but then they have to learn America and they have to learn why it's lovable. And every generation has to relearn and relearn that. That's something President Reagan said actually in his farewell address, pointing the, out the specific importance of civic education to sustain uh, the promise of America. It's one thing to have politics and policy. It can't be sustained without culture. Yeah. But the, un, the fundamental shaper of culture, besides religion in America, is education. And we, you have to have that kind of education. Thinking about America as a propositional uh, nation, there's an essay making the rounds right now by a gentleman named Glenn Elmers. He's a fellow at the Claremont Institute in Hillsdale College. Uh, the article is entitled Conservatism is No Longer Enough, and it pursues in part a line of reasoning that goes a little bit like we've been discussing. America is, though not exclusively so, a propositional nation. Therefore, those who reject those propositions, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, are, to whatever extent they reject these principles, not American in the truest sense of the word. Is that a fair conclusion of this argument? I think that's true, yeah. Then it, it means it's interesting because it cuts both ways. It means that my father-in-law, who emigrated from the Philippines when he was 30, can come to the United States, embrace these propositions, understand them as Jefferson did as self-evident truths, yeah and be as American or more American than people who have lived here a long time who don't understand those things. Uh, so it's not enough to just inhabit the land, mm -hmm. uh, to, to understand the land that you're inhabiting. You do need that um, education. And I, I would also say this, it has to be habituated in you. Mm -hmm. As Tocqueville calls it mores, character. And these ideas produce a certain character and then that character is open to further deepening these ideas. But the educational enterprise is essential because we are that kind of nation. Let's talk about Tocqueville. Uh, writing in the 19th century, Alexis de Tocqueville. When you ask an American about his government, quote, his language becomes clear, clean, and precise like his thought. He will teach you what his rights are and what means he will use to exercise them. He will know according to what usages the political world conducts itself, end quote. 2018, the National Assessment of Educational Progress as National Report Card reports that not even a quarter of eighth graders in the United States scored proficient or higher on the civics exam. 2020, a United States Senator-elect mentions the three branches of government, the House, the Senate, and the executive. Hmm. How did we get there? Uh, it's a long and sordid tale. <laughs> <laughs> But look, uh, it, it, it's not a, it's not a, it didn't happen in the last five years. It's been happening over, over a period of decades. But it is essentially true what you said. I mean, just to take one example, the Federalist, which now we read in college and a lot of students think, wow, this is tough sledding. Those were published as essays in New York City papers. Yeah. <laughs> the average newspaper paper reading citizen was thought to be able to comprehend these arguments. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> we've come a long ways, baby. Um, <laughs> Gosh. Not, not in the right direction in this case. Look, I, th I think we've, why is it? A number of reasons. One is we've certainly, we simply de-emphasize civic education. Hmm. 
in favor of other subjects. So if you spend less time on something, you're probably less like you're probably more likely to know less about it. Uh, that's just how it goes. STEM, for all of its importance, has dom come to dominate in K through 12 schools in terms of time and education. Federal government testing requirements that emphasize reading and math also, of course, divert people's attention toward those things. As worthy as they may be, um, as I tell students, it's important to know math, but you're not going to be a mathematician your whole life. You will be a citizen your whole life. Hmm. You need these things forever. So I think we just partly just need to spend more time on it. I also think there's been a conscious movement, um, lately self-proclaimed, to reorient American uh, civics, social studies education away from understanding the fundamental principles of the founding away from understanding the text of the constitution and founding documents, away from reading great speeches of people like Lincoln or Frederick Douglass. And when you get away from those deep minds, you're, you lose something profound that can never be gotten from a textbook. What has, it's a little bit self-selecting in Ashbrook. People are coming to you all already with an interest in these things, but you, you've had a long experience teaching. So what has that experience been like with the students? Are they interested in and knowledgeable of the American political system, totally uninterested or downright hostile to it? It's a little self-selecting. Yeah. Um, we don't get too many who are hostile, fortunately. Right. We get a lot who don't know very much. Uh, but every time I teach students, uh, I, hope is born again. Hmm. Because when you start letting them discover the story of America, let's just read the Declaration of Independence. Let's start with the first word and just start saying, what does this mean? Very naively, you can see things start to light up. Mm. And then you read the Declaration of Independence and then you say, why don't we read Lincoln's Gettysburg Address to understand the meaning of the Civil War and some of the trajectory of American history, at least as a guy like Lincoln understood it. They start to see, wait a minute, there's connections here between the Gettysburg Address and the Declaration of Independence. And then why don't we read Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech? And they start to see the connections between those other, and they start to begin to see this is a wonderfully interesting story yeah. of a people in a land with these propositions hmm. and their story of their struggle to live up to these. When they see it like that, they come, become immediately interested and engaged because they actually come to realize it's about them. It's about what it means to be an American. And if we can connect civics and history, as they're called, to that question and that story, uh, young people, I've seen it, they just, the, the lights turn on and they care. Yeah. So I'm assuming at Ashbrook, you all have this unique aspect of your work and that you teach teachers. This is how you tell them to do it, I assume. Just give the students the primary texts, work through it with them, read these speeches, read these documents. Yeah. We don't tell them to do it. We do it with them. Hmm. And then they realize this is the way I should be doing it with my students. Yeah. Yeah. We, we let them convert themselves <laughs> <laughs> because we're absolutely confident that once you read Abraham Lincoln and really get to know his mind, you're never going to go back to the other way of teaching. Yeah. That, that people, that classrooms become transformed by this mm -hmm. and they start putting aside textbooks which are boring, as everybody knows, or biased, sometimes both, right? <laughs> um, it's amazing how that could be, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, there are some great textbooks, Bill McClay, of course, Bill Land McClay. of Hope, yeah, that's right. uh, wonderful exception to that rule, but it is an exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. And when you really recover that, that 
original interesting conversation that animates so much of America, when the teachers do it, learn it by doing it, they, they do bring it to their classrooms. Yeah. So we've been talking primarily so far about the relationship between education and democracy from the perspective of education's effect on democracy. As James Madison said, uh, only a well-educated people can be a permanently free people. What about the reverse of this? And I'll put it to you this way. It seems today that we're experiencing a sort of democratization of education. Standards are being lessened. Less is being asked of students. We've already said that, right? The Federalist used to be weekend reading in, in a newspaper, and right. today our graduate students struggle through it. Uh, so less is being asked of students. Grades are being done away with because they're hierarchical and therefore undesirable. And Tocqueville seems to me at least to identify this as a potential problem in democratic societies, as he puts it, quote, a sort of incessant rotation of men over one another. It troubles and distracts the mind out animating or elevating it, end quote. Is there a tension here? A democratic republic like our own requires a well-educated citizenry, yet democracy may also bring about this leveling effect that makes it more difficult to develop a well-educated citizenry. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Tocqueville points us to that tension. Yeah. You're absolutely right. He does. Uh, he makes us aware of it. And he tells us a lot about the vices of the democratic mind, right? He begins the, uh, Democracy in America by talking about um, the need for a, a new political science for a world altogether new, as he puts it. Mm. And the new political science has to direct democracy. It has to purify its beliefs, reanimate its mores. It has to elevate it, in other words. And that part of that task falls on education. But it's right, the democratic mind, I mean, think of some of the things Tocqueville talks about as vices of the democratic mind, the conformity to public opinion, uh, you know, the, the, the power, the omnipotence and tyranny of the majority, as he puts it. And he actually says at one point, America, there is no freedom of thought in America. Therefore, America has no great writers. Hmm. Now, that's before Mark Twain. So <laughs> we could argue a little bit, but still, still, it's a profound and interesting thought when you think about what Americans spend their time reading, yeah. if they're reading at all. Um, you know, he talks about things like the American and the democratic mind's interest in or sort of fanatical attachment to the useful over the beautiful mm -hmm. and insisting that even the beautiful be useful, as he puts it. Yeah. Um, that, that means we're going to read and think about uh, things in a certain way for their usefulness and, and convenience and uh, practicality for us, rather than simply being beautiful and good in and of themselves. And our pension in things like science for practice over theory, for practical application, right? Rather than just pure theoretical contemplation, which is why in the book itself, in the work, he says there have got to be places in, in democracy like the United States, where people do things like read the Greeks and the Latins, yeah. where people keep the traditions alive in places like you know, universities, one would hope, because that has to elevate and ennoble, as, as Alan Bloom put it, right? It has to elevate, it has to be a place in democracy where the people can go to be elevated and educated and made wiser and, and a little bit perhaps self-critical of, of themselves as democratic human beings and seeing some of the vices to which uh, the democratic mind tends. 
when you teach democracy in America, so I'm telling on myself a little bit here, but in high school and in college, when we would read democracy in America, the way it's read, the selections that are that are chosen to be read are the ones about mediating institutions and the way the family works and Americans bond together and get things done. These passages that are more critical of democracy, pointing out some of the tensions there and the vices to which they tend, to which democracy tends, how do students react to that when you teach it? Some of them think, who does this uppity Frenchman think he is? <laughs> <laughs> Typical aristocratic talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my democratic students. <laughs> and some of them say, you know what? I think he's right. I've had the same experience with, with myself loving things like reading The Federalist and everyone around me saying, that's crazy. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so their reaction, but they, what's always amazing is we start the semester. I teach a whole semester class on this for Ashbrook scholars. Their senior <laughs> seminars, beginning from the first word to the last word of democracy in America. And I say at the beginning, you, you're not going to look at the world the same way 15 weeks from now. Huh. You're going to understand yourself and this country in, in a, something will be different. And you'll see it and you'll see it forever when you look around. And one of the things they see is the desperate need for elevating and ennobling education. Hmm. They'll often say that, in fact, now, now that I see this, I see that when I graduate from here, I need to continue reading uh, the classics, the ancients, the medievals. I need to continue, you know, these great conversations that we've been having here. I just can't let that go when I'm out in the nine to five work world. This experience of yours, and I'm from, I'm, I have friends who have had similar experiences. I have myself it seems like there's a market for a school or teachers that say, hey, we're not going to give you the easy way out. We're going to read really difficult stuff, but you'll be better for it, right? Isn't there a market for that? I, we're seeing a resurgence in K through 12 of classical education. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing classical public charter schools, classical schools exploding. Th Great Hearts Academies, for example, mm. in Arizona and Texas are just taking off because it's serious, it's rigorous, it has good effects. You know, you learn to think better, you learn to write better, read better, speak better, listen more effectively. All of those are good skills to have no matter what you do. But, but that's part of the sale, but it's not the thing that really moves a lot of the parents who put those students in there. They say, I just want them to have some time pursuing the true, the good, and the beautiful. And can't we do that together in conversation with these great thinkers? Because they look around and see their kids, you know, look on their on their iPhones all the time, doing looking at stuff, you know, that's just inane and not useful and not all that significant for them as human beings. And they say, there's got to be something else. Yeah. So I really think this burgeoning homeschool classical movement, charter school classical movement, and just even public schools being suffused, starting to be suffused with this. Latin is a very fast growing language in terms of its study in the United States among young people. Huh. Well, that's fascinating. I think of um, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli's letter to Francesco Vittori when he says he returns home and converses with the ancients. Uh, and I, you know, I, I told my younger brother, for example, well, if you're sick of the world around you, if you're dissatisfied with it, if people are boring you, if you feel like the culture doesn't offer you anything, sit down and converse with the ancients. That's uh, right. And enter the ancient courts of ancient men, as Machiavelli says. That's right. That's right. Okay, the, the trillion dollar question, a question no less than the survival of our nation and the survival, if Lincoln and the founders are to believe, of the democratic republican form of government itself. How do we do better? What needs to be fixed? 
Yeah, that's a, that is the trillion dollar question. Um, we need to go back to the primary sources. That's the first step. We need to say, let's just remove ourselves from the present and let's go back and try and understand some of these thinkers as they understood themselves and just enter those, enter those ancient courts with those ancient men and just get to know them a little bit. I really think this approach too, considering how incredibly politicized civics education has been and history education has become in the last five, 10 years, this is an approach that no matter what your political perspective is, it's hard to say no to it. Hmm. Let's just read. You wanna understand what it's like to be a human being under oppression and then try to become an, a, an American citizen, let's just read Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Let's see how that man became fully a man, as he puts it. And no matter what your political perspective is, you can't say no to that. And especially once you start reading him, you realize, wow, this is just a profound human being who I need to get to know. So I, I really think we have to just, and, and that lane is open. It really is open when you talk to people like that. You, you think they're going to reject it. It sounds too high-minded. It sounds too um, pie in the sky for some people, but it's not actually. And it doesn't come off that way. For people who care about their kids' education, when you talk like that, they respond really well. But you, you have to have the courage to talk like that. Yeah. It's uh, George W. Bush's The Soft Bigotry of Low Expectations right? Challenge these students, tell them that this will be difficult, but you can meet the challenge and, and they will. Um, so I wanted to ask you this, and it's a question increasingly relevant in the 1619 era, and that's how we teach American history to our students while being both honest about our nation's flaws and proud of her past, optimistic for her future. It sounds like you've already given part of an answer, which is let the story tell itself. But if you'd like to expand on that and offer anything else, please do. Yeah, let the, let the story tell itself and make sure that both sides of a debate get to be heard. Hmm. That's a great way to, to see the truth of it, to see the power of you know, Lincoln's argument. You really need to let students read John C. Calhoun. You really need to let them read Alexander Stevens. You need to let them hear the other side of the argument. You let them, they need to read Stephen Douglas. They need to read all these people who Lincoln is struggling intellectually and morally against yeah. and put them back into that animating debate. And, and then you're not taking sides. You're letting that story speak for itself, but they begin to actually see, wow, these questions really matter and they still matter. It goes to the core again of what America is and what it means to be an American. Who's right? John C. Calhoun or, or, or Abraham Lincoln? Who's right? Stephen Douglas or Abraham Lincoln? Who's right? Malcolm X or Martin Luther King Jr.? These are fundamental debates that still shape us. And I think if you approach it through that conversation and debate mode of these historical figures, first of all, it's just tremendously interesting to students, hmm. but it liberates them from any preconceptions. They just can't come in with just one side and only hear that one side. They have to hear all of these arguments. Thinking of potential solutions and thinking about the federal government's involvement in education, the, the Department of Education, it's big and it's growing. Uh, President Biden has requested that the department's budget be increased by some 40 percent uh, to over $100 billion. Two schools of thought right now amongst conservatives. One, the Department of Education is unconstitutional and should be dismantled. 
or if not dismantled, at least not used. Two, the department is there, it's not going anywhere. And when the opportunity presents itself, conservatives should try to use it to their own ends. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's a hard question. That's a great question of principle and prudence. Um, I know that John Ashbrook was opposed to the Department of Education. <laughs> so you have but, your answer already. You have to follow the party line. <laughs> <laughs> but being an Ashbrook person, I'll think for myself. But <laughs> look, we've spent a lot of money on the Federal Department of Education. And as you read from that 2018 NAEP report, yeah. we, we haven't gotten better. We've gotten worse. So clearly, uh, we can at least start from this premise. The money that we're spending through the Federal Department of Education is not working. We got to start from that simple fact. My view would be the the movement needs to be at the grassroots. Look, I, I would, yes, if we're going to have a Department of Education, then at least it should do no harm. And right now under the Biden administration, um, I think a lot of people are concerned that it is on the path to do great harm. Yeah. Um, at least it should do no harm. It should get out of the way of states. It should get out of the way of localities and communities and let them set the policy. But of course, the flip side of that is, but then they have to be setting good education policy. They have to understand the kind of education students should be getting and they have to actually apply it and, and work on it. Uh, the good news though is a lot of states in fact are, are doing this. There's a renewed interest among states and localities, folks I talk with all the time. How do we make our state the best in American history and civics education? Oh. A lot of people are asking that question at the state level. We don't see that question at the federal level, or we see it, but the answer is not a good one. But at the state level and the local level, we really are seeing that. The, the, the importance, when people see statues of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington being toppled by mobs of people who do not understand American history yeah. or know only one tiny part of that, they see that civic education really does matter. So there's this movement at the grassroots level that is building um, among policymakers, among citizens, families, among donors, philanthropists. They see the significance of this issue. Yeah. What if this is kind of a kooky idea, but I, it's it's an Ashbrook approach, I think. What if we got a bipartisan commission of lawmakers and they said, we're going to put together a core reading list that will be exclusively primary texts? And students at all public schools are required to study this. How do we how do we feel about that? Well, I mean, fire. It would be uncon. It's a good idea, but it's unconstitutional. <laughs> the whole department's unconstitutional. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, not every good idea is constitutional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's not unprecedented. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison talked about a reading list for University of Virginia, yeah. and they established one. And they put things on there like the Declaration of Independence, like Locke's uh, writings, like Washington's farewell address, the Federalist Papers. I mean, we know what these founders thought was essential to study if you wanted to understand America's founding principles and its constitution. Yeah. So we can take that list, frankly, and just start putting it to work in classrooms and schools and communities around the country. Uh, that, 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 I think, is the right way to go, bottom up. Top down and that kind of social engineering never works. Yeah. So looking at the, the grassroots level, um, for parents looking to instill in their children this understanding 
of and devotion to this nation, or for anyone else just looking to do the same for themselves, what advice do you have? Just pick up the primary texts and start reading them? Well, it's, you know, not all parents have that time or education, of course. Sure. So, you know, it, it, yes, I would love, I would love that just to start by reading the Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July, you yeah. know, and, and anybody wants a Declaration of Independence Constitution booklet, Ashbrook's got them and we'll send them. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Happy to do that always. Um, look, it's an interesting fact. One thing about the COVID um, educational crisis and students not being in schools, it's been, had a lot of very, very negative effects, as everybody knows. It has, one, has had one good effect at least, which is parents are getting to know more about what their students are studying because they're in the same house with them. They're in the same room with them. They're, they're, they're helping them do the work. And they're starting to see, in fact, what their kids are and aren't learning about America, American history and government. Um, and there's a movement now that's gaining steam for transparency, for schools to simply just, you know, if you're teaching American history, the local school, post on your website what, in fact, the students are reading hmm. and let parents see that. That doesn't take very long for a parent to go click on the website, look at that stuff and say, hmm, is that good or not? Yeah. And then there's a lot of organizations and resources out there that can say, you know, here's what some good things would be. Compare that to what your school is doing. And yeah. so there's actually some bills being put forward in states to say, you don't, we're not going to tell teachers what to teach. We're not going to mandate what local schools decide as curriculum, but we're just going to say, if they take state money, they need to post their curriculum online so parents mm. can be informed and then they can make those kind of decisions. They can go to their local school board. They could take, you know, go talk to the teacher. They, if it worse came to worse, they could take their child out of that school and put them somewhere else. In other words, there would be much more of a market in education and an inf informed consumers would be part of that market. Right. You suppose that's, that's part of the concern, right? You mentioned earlier uh, Tocqueville and his chapters in Democracy in America about the inculcation of these mores. Uh, so not just learning the nuts and bolts of the civic education and the way the political system works, but the inculcation of the mores. Are, are we just so divided as a country that that sort of inculcation of the mores just can't be done anymore? I don't think so. I think if you talk about what are some fundamental good American characteristics, um, you know, all honest work is honorable. So Tocqueville says that's an American idea. Um, optimism, a sense of we can come together in these associations that you talked about earlier and we can do these things. Um, honesty, uh, industry, there's so many that we could talk about. Um, I think a lot of people would nod their heads and say, absolutely, yes, I want those mores. I want my kids to be inculcated with those mores. I don't think most of those are very controversial at all. So I think there's a lot of common ground, more than what the politicization uh, of aspects of American history and government would suggest. And I think there's a lot of common ground, in fact, on things saying things like, look, America was founded on principles of freedom, but we haven't always lived up to those. Yeah. That, that is a common sense understanding that resonates with people that's realistic, but also hopeful mm. that a lot of people can sign on to. Well, it's not often that we get to end these conversations, especially about the state of civic education and the divisions of the country on an optimistic note. So I'm grateful that we have a chance to do that today. Our guest today has been Jeff Sakinga. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Madison's Notes. Thank you very much for having me. Great pleasure.
there you have it, Madisonians. Jeff Sikinga of the Ashbrook Center on Locke, Tocqueville, the work of educating citizens, and a little bit of fun with an unconstitutional reading list. As I mentioned, I put a link to the Ashbrook Center's website in the show notes, so be sure to pay them a visit and learn a little bit more about some of their wonderful programming. That'll do it for us today. Thanks as always for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.